Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus, chapter 33. First 11 verses this morning. But let us read together Exodus 33. So would you stand with me as I read God's holy word for us this morning? And after I read verse 11, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Your word, O God, is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask it would pierce us through the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, to discern our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, that we might not be hidden from your sight, but that we would remember that it is before you that one day we must give an account. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
may be seated. To reset the stage of where we are in the book of Exodus, let us remember that the two stone tablets, the two stone tablets that were called the very work of God, that were written on with the finger of God, the tablets that contained the covenant the Lord had made with Israel were smashed at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses broke them when he saw the rampant and wicked idolatry of the Israelites. These tablets were a visible reminder and a visible representation of Israel's relationship with Yahweh. But now the visual was not a pleasant one. The Israelites only saw the smashed tablets, the broken tablets, that were strewn upon the ground because of their sin. It was now a different reminder, a different visible representation. Just as the tablets were broken, so the relationship with their Lord had been broken. It means the intimacy, the closeness, the unity, the peace that they had known with God was lost. It was a tragedy. A broken relationship is not a good relationship. It has been damaged, hearts have been burdened, and a separation occurs. It reminds me of a nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. You remember that one? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. These are the lyrics that we are familiar with, although there are some older lyrics. So if you had lived in 1797, you would have said something like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Four score men and four score more couldn't make Humpty Dumpty where he was before. Four score equals 80. A score is 20, so four times 20, 80. 80 men couldn't fix Humpty Dumpty and 80 men more, if my math is right, 160 men, I think, couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. They couldn't put him where he was before. They couldn't put him back up on that wall. Humpty Dumpty's fall led to his demise. He was broken beyond repair. There was no chance for him to sit on that wall again. And all efforts and all attempts to fix him and to repair him failed. No one could fix Humpty Dumpty's brokenness. And there lay the broken stone tablets. All of man's efforts to fix them, all of man's efforts to piece them back together or put them back together would never work. They would only fail. And not only were the broken tablets a visual representation of the fact that they had a broken relationship with Yahweh, but it was also a visual representation of their lives. Israel, this is what your lives look like. They are broken. They are shattered. Who's responsible for this? Who's done this? 
Did God break his covenant with his people? Did God destroy the relationship with his people? No, God is and always will be only and ever faithful. He did not break the covenant. The people of Israel broke the covenant. That's what we read in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. If you have your Bible, you can look at that with me. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Do you hear it there? God had made a covenant with them, and it was his covenant. He says, this is my covenant. I own it. I designed it. It was mine. And Israel broke it. Even though, even though I was a faithful husband to them, even though I taken care of them, even though I provided for them, they committed adultery. They cheated on me. What a reminder. Again, in those verses, this was God's covenant that he had given to his people. God loved them first. In love and in grace, he established this covenant and relationship with his people. But it was they who were unfaithful to him. They broke the covenant marriage. And now we read about the ramifications of this breach between Yahweh and his people. This broken relationship. There are ramifications that are going to happen to these people because of this broken relationship. Would it ever be able to be restored? Would it ever able to be put back together again? Well, I think while the ramifications are very difficult, there's hope in the end. And so we're going to move through these three points this morning. These three points also revolve around some feelings of first grief, then mourning, then hope. But number one, the first point, you can follow along in your outline if that's helpful in your bulletin. Number one, a broken relationship with the Lord results in a disastrous word. A broken relationship with the Lord results in a disastrous word. There is a television program called Alone, where ten contestants are dropped off in a remote location with 10 items to see how long they can survive in the wilderness in this remote location alone. While some contestants have to quit because of injury or because they can't find enough food to eat, there are quite a few contestants who throw in the towel simply because they have had enough of being alone. It's the isolation that gets to them. It wreaks havoc even on their mental state. How does the thought of being alone sound to you? Maybe you would cherish some alone time. Some mothers 
might not even be able to go to the bathroom without little hands pounding on the door of the bathroom. Some people may even prefer to be alone. They like being alone. Or some people would say, leave me alone. I would argue that being alone is not a blessing but a curse. And while more and more people distance themselves from others, being alone, isolating yourself from other people has a destructive effect on your physical health, on your mental health, on your emotional health, and on your spiritual health. Are you alone? Do you feel alone? It's not something to be desired, as the Israelites found out. The Israelites are commanded by the Lord to leave Mount Sinai, this place where they have experienced the highest of highs. They've seen the Lord descend on the mountain in fire and smoke with great trembling of the earth. They had heard the trumpet and the thunder as the Lord spoke to Moses on the mountain. The leaders of Israel saw the God of Israel. They saw the sapphire pavement that was underneath his feet. They had a meal with him to confirm the covenant. What glory, what greatness, what holiness, what intimacy and closeness with the Lord himself. But they also had experienced the lowest of lows. It was there at this mountain where they had made the golden calf, where they had rejected the Lord and his commandments, where they had reveled in their sin rather than in the God who had revealed himself to them. Now they were to leave this mountain, the mountain that had been called the mountain of God. And the Lord confirms that he will still fulfill the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So notice what he says here. To your offspring I will give this land. The people will go to the promised land. The Lord will ensure that they get to the right spot, that they will get there safely because he says, an angel will go before you, will lead you to this land. It does, however, appear here that the Lord is distancing himself from the people. In Exodus 23:23, we read, when my angel goes before you. But now, when we read this in verse 2 of Exodus 33, God says, I will send an angel before you. It seems like there is a difference. It seems like there is a variation. The Lord no longer says, I will send my angel, but now it's more generic. I will just send any angel, a different angel. The angel of chapter 23 could have been the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord that was associated with the very presence of God himself. The angel of the Lord that many theologians have thought of throughout the ages as the pre-incarnate Christ. There is the angel of the Lord who is going to lead and go before the Israelites in the wilderness and bring them to the promised land. But now it's just an angel. An angel will go before you and he will take care of you. It's no longer the angel of the Lord, it's no longer the pre-incarnate Christ. But yet the Lord still promises to drive out the inhabitants of the land. These pagan people will be driven out because the sinfulness 
of their sin is complete and full. And then notice also, you will go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. This land is a very fertile land. It's a land of excess. It will have more than what you need. It will have abundant blessing upon you, a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, the early church saw milk and honey as the drink of eternity. That that's what you would drink in heaven. And so with all of these things that the Lord says, and follow this here, I will, I will, I will. And then Yahweh drops the atomic bomb of bad news upon them. But I will not go up among you. Yahweh separates himself from the people. Yahweh removes himself from being among them. As if Yahweh is saying, you want to be left alone? You got it. I'm out of here. Why did God do this? Why did God say, I'm going to leave you alone? I'm going to leave you, I'm going to give you over to your sinful desire. Why does God do that? And just as a side note, be careful what you wish for. But why does God leave them alone? Because they cannot be in his holy presence. Because if his holy presence comes among them, it will consume them, it will destroy them. Because they were a stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people left to themselves. And then look at what it says in verse 4. When the people heard this, what? Disastrous word. Or, it could be said this, it was a distressing word or a disturbing word that they heard from Yahweh. This is how the bad news is described. John Chrysostom summarizes why this is a disastrous word when he says this, to be separated from God is greater punishment than a thousand hells. How many people are content without the Lord? How many would want God to leave them alone? Who would falsely believe that life without God is any good life at all? But what is even worse is how many professing Christians want all the benefits afforded by Christ, but they do not want Christ. They want all of the good promises of God to be lavished upon them. They want to drink the milk and honey. They want the spiritual blessings of Christ. They want the streets of gold. They want the river of life. They want the leaves that are for the healing of the nations. They want to see their loved ones once again. They want the place where all evilness and wickedness and pain and suffering and sin and death has been completely expelled. 
but they would be completely content to have all of that without Christ. They want the trimmings and the trappings of Christianity, but they don't want Emmanuel. They don't want God with us. And how many people fill churches that have been lulled into a Christless Christianity? What is your reaction to the thought of being without Christ? Is it a disastrous word to you? Perish the thought that I would ever be without Christ. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Maybe it's a good word for you. You like the thought of being without Christ. You get to do what you want when you want without Christ or anyone else telling you what to do. You want to live life your way, and so you think it's better to be without Christ. But you are enslaved and dead in your sins. You are blind without God and without hope in this world. You are on the path of destruction. Do not believe the lies. Life without Christ is not the good life. It is not any life at all. Being separated from Him now is only a foretaste of being separated from Him forever. There is something in me that is perplexed because I do not know how I can go a day or a moment without Christ. I don't know how people can go on without Christ. If you are trying to go on in your life without Christ, it must be hell. Because I don't know how I would be able to stand another day without Him. Maybe you are indifferent to this word. You could take or leave Christ. If you find some advantage, if you find some blessing, if it makes you feel good, helps you get along, then you'll take Jesus. But it's not out of love for Jesus. It's only for the goods and the glory. It's, in fact, actually a Jesus without the cross. It's a Jesus without his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a Jesus without a payment for your sin. It's a Jesus without grace, a Jesus without mercy, a Jesus without true love. You are content to use Jesus, but not submit to him, not to follow him, and unwilling to die to yourself, because if you're honest, you love yourself more than you love Jesus. What's the way forward? Brings us to number two. A broken relationship with the Lord requires repentance. A broken relationship with the Lord requires repentance. After this disastrous news, the people mourned. So first there was grief, now there's this mourning that's happening. What we see among the people is an act of repentance. And it is commanded by the Lord. Do you know that the Lord commands people to repent? God doesn't say, Hey, you know what would be a good idea? If you want to, if you feel like it, if you ever get around to it, repent. 
God commands you to repent. In fact, that's one of the things that Paul says in Acts 17. He, that is God, commands all people everywhere to repent. So you know what that tells me? Everywhere, all people, no exceptions, no loopholes. And so the Israelites are commanded to repent, and repentance takes a visible form. Think of that. Repentance is something very public, very visible, something that's out there for people to see. Versus something that we think of, often I think we think of repentance, we think of it as private, as hidden. Now there are things that Jesus says not to do to be showy, not to do to show your spirituality. You don't give to make it a grand show. You don't fast to let other people know that you're fasting. You don't pray to let other people know that you are praying. But interesting here, this repentance is not private. It's not like, hey, Israelites, go into your tent and repent there behind closed doors where no one can see you, just between you and the Lord. No, it's out there, open, everyone to see. No one put on his ornaments. And that's what God commands. So now take off your ornaments. These are the ornaments that they had plundered from the Egyptians. And these ornaments were to be put on their bodies as an exhibition of their joy, of their happiness. But now these ornaments are to be taken off so the Lord can make this divine decision so that he might know what to do with them. If they repent, he would know what to do with those people who repented. So they repented. They stripped off the ornaments from their bodies. This word stripped is the same word that's used for plundered earlier in the book of Exodus when the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. Now the Israelites were to, in a sense, plunder themselves, strip themselves to show their mourning, to show their grief. And this repentance was now to be a part of their lives going forward. Do you see that there? Verse 6, therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Here at this mount and on into their travels in the wilderness until they reach the promised land from Mount Horeb onward, you're to live in this repentance. It's not just a one-time repentance, it's a continual repentance. And the people were continuing to repent of their sins. Paul helps us understand what repentance looks like in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
Here is a godly grief that produces repentance unto salvation. And here is where I believe we need to apply a corrective to the way we think about repentance. Let me say this very carefully. Repentance is not knowing you're a sinner. Let me say that again. Repentance is not knowing you're a sinner. Many people are aware that they are sinners. They know that they are sinners. They would not even deny that they are sinners. Too many people have made repentance just that. Acknowledge that you are a sinner, they say, but that is where they leave it. That is all that they say that you need for repentance, but that is not repentance. Repentance is hating the sin you once loved. It is forsaking sin. It is running away from sin. People can acknowledge they are a sinner, but they can still love their sin. We are never left merely acknowledging our sin as if all we need to know is that sin exists in our lives. We must change our minds about it, to think about our sin as the Lord thinks about it, to flee from it, and so kill the sin in our lives. Matthew 5.4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is time more people know how to plunder themselves for the sake of their relationship for the Lord. And what's amazing and what's beautiful about this is that repentance is the path towards enjoying God himself. When you resist repentance, you are resisting what the Lord has given you so that you might enjoy him more. Why would you resist it? Why would you stop it? Why would you not want repentance to be in your life every day? Do you know that you are a sinner? Good. Now what have you done about it? Finally, a broken relationship with the Lord is restored through a special relationship. A broken relationship with the Lord is restored through a special relationship. Moses has this tent that he pitches outside of the camp, far off from the camp. He calls this the tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle. The tabernacle has not yet been built. We know it's not the tabernacle because the tabernacle was to be in the very middle of the camp, among the people. It was to be the place where the Ark of the Covenant resided, the very presence of the Lord would be there. This is a tent that's outside the camp. The presence didn't reside there all the time. It seems like the presence came down when Moses entered the tent. It was a place where people were to go to seek the Lord. But we are given specific detail to what happens when Moses went to that tent. Moses goes to the tent. He enters it. Whenever he does that, the people rise up at their tent. They watch Moses go into the tent. Then they see the pillar of cloud, which is the presence of Yahweh, descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. 
When the people would see the pillar of cloud there stand at the entrance of the temple, they would bow down in worship. It's almost as if the people, each in their own individual tents, are reenacting what is going on in that tent of meeting. They're rising up, they're staying at the door of their tent, and then when the presence of God comes down the tent, they worship the Lord. They bow themselves down to the ground. They realize that there's something going on there that's special. They're realizing that Moses is fulfilling a role for them that they need. Moses is filling this mediator role between them and Yahweh. Moses is the go-between. And what does it say there? When Moses is there in the tent, the Lord used to speak to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses has such a special relationship with Yahweh that Yahweh spoke to him face to face. That does not mean that Moses saw Yahweh's face. In fact, in a few verses later, we're going to see no one can look at Yahweh's face and live. But it's saying that Yahweh spoke directly to Moses. There was an intimacy. There was a closeness there. And Yahweh spoke to Moses. Why did Yahweh speak to Moses in that way? Well, because Moses was the prophet of God. He was to take that word back to the people. He was to tell the people what the Lord had said. So Moses was the mediator. Moses was the prophet. And he has this special relationship where it says, Yahweh spoke to, Mo to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Which begs a question, doesn't it? There's something just assumed in that when we read it. Like, we would know what it is for someone to talk to their friend. There's no explanation of that, is there? Like, okay, when a man speaks to his friend, this is how a man talks. It's just assumed that we know what that's like. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like for someone to talk to their friend? Do you know what it's like to talk to your friends? How do you speak to your friends? A man speaks to his friend lovingly, truthfully, honestly, openly, directly, carefully, kindly, compassionately, humbly, correctively, encouragingly, and gently. Think of the love that Yahweh had for Moses to speak to him as a friend. God and Moses were friends. God and Moses were friends. What great truth is that? That God would be a friend with a man like Moses? Do we know what it is for God to be a friend? Maybe think of Jesus Christ. In particular, what Jesus says at the end of John 12. 
Jesus says this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What I say, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What does that say? Jesus had a special relationship with God. Jesus calls God his Father. As the second person of the Trinity, they have this special and enduring relationship. And it says there, the Father told Jesus, told the Son what to say, and he said it. This special relationship, though, led to the most unexpected friendship. Look at me with Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus says, my opponents and my enemies use this against me. They said I was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. They said that to try to despise me. They said that to my shame and to my detriment. But Jesus says, you know what? That's absolutely right and true. Jesus is a friend to sinners. Yahweh had a special relationship to Moses. The son has an even more special and privileged relationship with the father. And now... The Son, who is truly man and truly God, has a special relationship with sinners. That he would even befriend them. And you know what Jesus as our friend does? He doesn't leave us in our sin. He saves us from our sin. He rescues us from our sin. He says, now repent of your sin, forsake your sin, sin no more. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin no longer has power or control over you so that you have to obey it and its passions and its lusts. No, Jesus says, I am your friend sinner to release you from your sin so that you might glorify God with all that you are. Is it good news to you today that Jesus is a friend to sinners? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And may it be good news that Jesus is a friend to sinners. And such a friend that he would not leave us in our sin or leave us in our worldly loves or leave us in our worldly desires and passions, but that he would 
die so that we could be freed from those things. Die so that we could be made new. Die so that we might live to righteousness. Oh Lord. May we rejoice that Jesus is a friend to sinners like us. And if there is someone here today who doesn't know you, may they know today. May they put their faith in you today. May they repent of their sin today. And know the friendship that comes from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Pray this in his name. Amen.